we turn to the Word of God, we turn to our Bibles. If you have a church Bible, uh, it's the book of Acts and chapter 5, page 1100, page 1100. We're going to read from chapter 5 and verse 12 uh, to verse 32 which is not quite the end of the chapter. So we're in the early days of the church, and uh, here we have what the Lord is doing through his apostles at this time. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out, And said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look! The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand, as leader and saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. 
And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Just look back with me again at verse 31, which is our text for this morning. God exalted him, that is Jesus, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. In the next couple of days, we are going to find out who will be the new prime minister of this country. We are living in some of the most uncertain times that our country has faced for the last 75 years. And the new leader will have a very difficult task before him. His time as prime minister may be long or short, may be successful or disastrous. Much speculations already surrounded the likely outcomes of this new Prime Minister as he takes office later this week. But I want to say very little more this morning about national earthly politics because Christian people's ultimate hope must never be in any temporary earthly ruler. If it is, then we are short-sighted because here we are given our leader with a capital L, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're told something about who this leader is. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So let's first of all this morning simply think about the leader. Who is this leader? One of the best known verses in the Bible, which indeed is, I understand this, literally smack bang in the middle of the Bible, if you number the verses, this comes right in the center, is Psalm 118, verse 8. And I'll read verse 8. And verse 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Little princes with a lowercase p. Because here we have one who is the leader and the prince whose letters are capitalized. God exalted him at his right hand as leader. What does this word leader mean? Well, it can be translated in different ways. The word can mean author. It can mean captain. It can mean founder or pioneer or indeed prince. Many versions use that word prince. But he is a leader. He is the head. 
He is the chief. He is the one that God says is at his right hand, his strength, his power, his executive force and action. And this leader is far above every other little leader that this world has ever known. There are plenty of leaders strutting around the world stage right now, aren't there? There are leaders who like to display their weaponry and their economy and their, and their social media and whatever it might be. There are leaders east and west and north and south. You go back to the 1930s and there were great but terrible leaders in this world. Mussolini and Stalin and Hitler, and there have been leaders ever since, some bad, some good, some very great, but none, none as great as this, the one whom Revelation calls the ruler of the kings of the earth and the king of kings and the Lord of lords, above all authority and power both earthly, visible power, and invisible power, angelic power, demonic power, satanic power, above every power, on heaven and on earth, is this leader, Jesus. And as we meet this morning, we think of those around the world who meet in the name of Jesus in very different circumstances. There are those in prison camps, in places like North Korea, fearing for their lives. But their true leader is not Kim Jong-un. Their true leader is Jesus Christ. House churches in China, unsure about their future and their safety, and their true leader is not Xi Jinping. Their true leader is Jesus Christ. And our true leader is not Theresa May, Boris Johnson, Jeremy Hunt, Donald Trump, whoever it may be, our true leader is the Lord Jesus Christ. Never forget that. And he's leader and he's savior. Do you notice that? He's savior. What does that mean? He's rescuer. He's deliverer. He's the one who brings us out of a terrible danger and peril. This is our leader. But I have a question. What does this leader give us? When any leader comes to power, the people he leads are bound to ask this question. What will this leader do for us? How will his leadership benefit us? How will life improve under the leadership of this new leader, whoever he or she may be? We might ask in today's political language, what is this leader's manifesto? What's he promising and going to deliver? Well, here in verse 31, we are told something of what this great leader, Jesus Christ, gives his people. Repentance and forgiveness of sins, it says. And I want to think this morning especially about this subject of repentance. 
So my second point is simply, what is repentance? What do we mean by repentance? The New Testament was written in the Greek language. And the word for repentance is, I'll give you the word, it's the word metanoia. Metanoia. And let me compare it to a more familiar Greek word that many of you will know. Metamorphosis. You know what that is, don't you, children? Metamorphosis. It's when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly or a moth. It's when a tadpole becomes a frog or a toad. It's a change of form. It's a change of shape. The creature looks so different, doesn't it? Tadpole to frog, caterpillar to butterfly. Great change. Repentance. This word, metanoia, what does it mean? It means a change of mind. It means a transformation of the human mind. An about turn in the whole orientation and attitude of the mind. We often talk about changing our mind, don't we? We might say, well, I was going to go to Morrison's, and I changed my mind, and I went to Sainsbury's. That's a change of mind. But I'm not sure we'd call that a repentance. That's a bit too trivial to be a repentance. A repentance is an altogether deeper, bigger, more radical change than just deciding to go to one shop rather than the other, or to eat rice rather than noodles, or whatever it might be. Repentance is a deep and fundamental change of mind. Let me read from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The catechism, the standard of faith that we as Grove Chapel have stood on for 200 years to understand what the Word of God teaches. And this is what repentance is according to question 87. What is repentance unto life? Here's the answer. Repentance unto life is a saving grace by which a sinner, being truly aware of his sinfulness, understands the mercy of God in Christ and grieves for and hates his sins, and turns from them to God, fully intending and striving for a new obedience. Now, you can look that up if you want later on. You just Google Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 87, and you can see it for yourselves. I'll read it one more time. Repentance unto life. What is it? It's a saving grace by which a sinner, being truly aware of his sinfulness, understands the mercy of God in Christ, grieves for and hates his sins, and turns from them to God, fully intending and striving for a new obedience. There are two elements, there are two things here that are very important about repentance. Repentance is a change of mind which recognizes 
that I am a sinner and sin is something that God hates. And when I repent, I realize that sin is, is horrible and it brings me sorrow and pain and grief. I see, I feel, I sense that sin is offensive and foul and wicked in the sight of God. Now you remember King David. And in Psalm 51 verse 4, King David says this to God. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What had happened to David? David had been going through his life quite confidently, and had sinned wickedly against God in all sorts of ways, without perhaps understanding what he had done, until one day a man called Nathan came and said to David, he told him a story about a rich man who stole his neighbor's little lamb, and David said, what a terrible thing that was for that man to do. And then Nathan said, you may remember, but you are that man. You stole your neighbor's wife, And you killed your neighbor, and you lied, and you cheated, and you lusted, and you murdered. You are that man. And David was struck with horror and grief and pain that I have sinned against God. And he says in Psalm 51 verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Lord, you've opened my eyes to see that my sin is against you. And I feel the weight and the pain of my sin. But there's a second element in repentance. There's not only that sense of feeling that we are great sinners, though that is necessary. There's secondly this. There is a desire to turn away from sin when we realize how gracious and kind and forgiving our God is in sending his Son to die for us. Repentance is a change of mind that grieves for sin and then turns back to God. And both those parts must be there for it to be real repentance. Judas Iscariot felt dreadful about his sin. When he had betrayed Jesus, he realized what he had done. He says, I've betrayed innocent blood. He he threw the money back to the chief priests who had paid it to him. And he went away and he took his own life. He was full of guilt and remorse and pain. But Judas did not repent because he did not see, did not find, did not Look for the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God, which is in Jesus Christ. You see, when there is repentance, there is a hatred of sin, and there is a looking to the Lord through Jesus Christ because of his mercy to us. That's essential. You see, repentance is a change of mind that comes about in relation to Jesus and our relationship to him. Let me explain. Take other examples, and you'll see what I mean. Jesus Christ was crucified, 
and either side of him there were two thieves, two wicked men, two, two violent men who deserved to die, unlike Jesus. And we read in Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel that both these men were insulting Jesus, shouting at Jesus, mocking Jesus from the cross on which they were crucified. But then Luke tells us, and only Luke tells us one thing, doesn't he? He says, there was a point at which one of those men's hearts and minds was changed. And he stopped insulting Jesus and mocking Jesus. His heart was softened. His mind was renewed, transformed, metamorphosed, if you like, into a new attitude towards Jesus. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him so graciously, so kindly, yes, truly, today I tell you, you will be with me today in paradise. What happened to that man? He repented. He was changed. He had a new heart. He had a new mind, had a new attitude towards Jesus. That's what repentance is. Take another episode a little bit later on, the day of Pentecost. And gathered there in front of Peter, the great crowd who had been clamoring a few weeks earlier that Jesus be crucified. Crucify him. Crucify him. He's a false prophet released to us Barabbas. We want Jesus crucified, they said. But then Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preached about Jesus to them. He preached the death of Jesus. He preached that these very people had put Jesus on the cross. He preached that Jesus had died and risen again to give life to all who hope in him. And their hearts were changed. We read that they were, they were cut to the heart. And they cried out to Peter, men, brothers, what shall we do? What can we do? Our conscience is tormentous. We're as guilty as sin. There's something we can't do for ourselves. We're, we're condemned men. What can we do? Ah, oh, says Peter, repent and believe in Jesus Christ that your sins might be forgiven. Your sins will be blotted out. That's repentance. Their hearts were changed, you see. Last example, greatest example. You know who it is, don't you? Of course you do. Some of you. Saul of Tarsus, on his way to Damascus. Murder and threatening and anger and bloodshed in his heart. You could see the man. You could see his face, maybe crimson with rage and, and anger and, and wanting to stamp out this Jesus movement. He hated Jesus. He hated his followers. He wanted them gone from the face of the earth. He went to ask for letters to, to bring them to, to, to be sentenced and to be imprisoned and all the rest of it. But then something happened to him, didn't it? A great light comes from heaven. A voice sounds in his ear that only he hears. Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And Saul is struck with amazement and awe and wonder and terror. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? What's going on here? What's happening to me? I am Jesus, says the voice, and says the face that Saul now sees. I am Jesus that you are persecuting. And Saul is struck blind. 
But Saul becomes a new man that day, doesn't he? That's the great thing. New mind, new understanding of who Jesus is, new heart, new soul, new life, new everything. Changed forever that day. This is repentance, you see. It's a change of mind. It's a change of the whole interior mindset and attitude about who we are and who God is and who Jesus is. But I have one final point that has to be made this morning, tying these first two together. Jesus is the leader who gives repentance. He is the leader who gives repentance to his people. Why and how? Because it's all part of the gracious mercy and goodness and kindness of this leader. It is his gift to us that we receive from him the gift of repentance. His mercy and power are so great that he gives us what only he can give us which is the ability, the power, the actual repentance itself. He enables us, he enables you and me to see the guilt of our sin. He puts within our hearts himself that holy desire to turn away from sin and instead to pursue obedience and righteousness. Only he can do this. Why? Because it's not within your native power, nor mine. It's not within our natural ability, unaided and weak as we are, to repent and say, I, I, today, in my own strength, repent and turn to God, and I will do it. We cannot do that. You hear sometimes about people Maybe we've all done this, haven't we, at various times, New Year's Day and so on. People turning over a new leaf. Oh yes, a new resolution, a fresh resolve, something new and bold and ambitious which I intend to do. I remember reading about the uh, former cricket captain of South Africa, Graham Smith, who became captain of that Successful team at the age of 22. 22, captain of South Africa. Astonishing. During his teenage years, he was so incredibly motivated, apparently. He would write on his fridge, where he lived with his parents, all these words like discipline, resolve, ambition, target, control, all these sorts of things. And they motivated him to become an astonishingly self-controlled and disciplined young man in his teens and early 20s to become successful captain of a South African cricket team. What I'm saying to you this morning is that our repentance is nothing like that. It doesn't come because you or I decide to take this task upon ourselves. It's not something that lies within our unaided, 
normal human capacity or potential. God exalted Jesus as a leader and savior to give repentance to his people. It's his gracious gift. It's in the power of Jesus alone to give it. As the catechism has already said that we've seen, repentance unto life is a saving grace. It's a gift of God. The favorite verse of Henry Atherton here a hundred years ago. By grace are you saved. Through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works. That no one may boast. Ephesians 2. 8 and 9. It's a gift of God's grace. Understand this this morning. It is not simply that the Lord gives you time to repent. It is not simply that the Lord gives you space to repent. It's not that he simply gives you opportunity to repent. Or a command to repent. Or that he somehow helps us to repent and gives us a little bit of a leg up and then says, over to you now, you do all the rest. No. Our text tells us That this repentance itself, that we are at all able to repent and do repent, this flows to us directly from the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. It's the only way it can come. Let me come back to briefly to earthly politics. A new leader comes to office. A new prime minister is in 10 Downing Street this week. Is head of the government. What will he give to the people? What would people like the new prime minister to do for them? There are all kinds of answers, aren't there? We'd like lower taxes. We'd like better housing. We'd like an improved health service. We'd like a stronger education system. We would like secure defense. We would like improved law and order in our inner cities. A reduction in crime. A just, fair, equable society. And this new prime minister and his cabinet can discuss and implement policies which aim for these goals. But they will always be handicapped, won't they? Because no mere earthly leader can ever do the one thing that would make the greatest imaginable impact on the condition of any nation, this or any other nation. What's the great change that is needed that no prime minister or president can bring about? It's repentance. It's a deep-rooted change of mind, a change of heart. A change of attitude, a new mindset, new desires, new priorities, a complete makeover of the whole life and soul. Governments can raise taxes and build new homes and train more doctors and teachers, but they can't get right down to that 
deepest and most essential problem of all, and neither can anyone else. What's that problem? It's the sin and the pride and the greed and the lust and the selfishness of the human heart. And you know, if that kind of change, if the change the Bible talks about as the, the new heart, repentance, if that were to be worked in the lives of many, most people in our country, what a changed society we would see, wouldn't we? You can read the accounts of revival, you see. Go back to the 1850s, 1859, 1860, particularly in Northern Ireland, and you find that society is utterly transformed when thousands of people are born again and are brought to repentance and faith. And the pubs and the bars are empty and the prisons are emptied and the police are out of work. There's no crime on the streets, no theft, and family life is peaceful, and dads aren't getting drunk anymore or being violent anymore, and everywhere's changed, and it feels safe and bright and happy and prosperous and successful in every imaginable way. How could that happen? By an act of parliament? By a new prime minister? A new government? None of these things will ultimately work. And what about your life? Are there things about your life which you're sick and tired of? You're sick and tired of those same old sins, those same ingrained attitudes, the way you keep tripping up over this and that, the way you lose your patience, you lose control, you let yourself and everybody else down, and you're tired of it. And you think about your life in the eyes of God and you feel ashamed. You don't love God like you once did. You feel you're far from him. You feel you're making a mess of your life. Only God, through Jesus Christ, can give you this gift of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Mentioned also in verse 31. How does he do it? What does it feel like? What, what goes on? Jesus Christ draws us to himself. He comes into our minds. He captures our understanding and he captures our, our desires and our priorities and our will and our emotions, our whole beings. He inclines our hearts to want to do the things that please him. A new, radical, spiritual work takes place so that our hearts are no longer hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh. And there is within us a new, genuine, sincere hungering and thirsting after God and his righteousness. You see, I'm not talking about something hypocritical. I'm not talking about something that is play-acting and saying, oh, well, I'd better try and do what's right because I've been told to and I've got to. 
and my parents say I should, and the pastor says I should, and even God says I should, and I'd better get on with it, hadn't I? That's not repentance. Repentance is not, I'd better get on with it. Repentance is, I want to know him. I want to love him more. I want to live for him. I want a closer walk with him. I know my walk with him has been so lacking for so long, and I want to return, and he's drawing me. And let me say this as I, as I come to a conclusion. You might say to me this morning, well, I hear what you're saying, but I don't think I'm ready to repent yet. I'd like to be where you're describing, but I'm not there yet. I've got progress to make. Let me think about it until about the autumn and then come back and repent. No, that's your misunderstanding if you're saying that. Jesus Christ comes to you as you are right now, as you are today. And he says, do you know that you're a sinner? Do you know that you've fallen short of God's glory and God's commandments? And that's all you need to know. And then to know this, that Jesus ready stands to save you, full of mercy, joined with power. He doesn't say to you, well, I can tell you're feeling sorry, but you just go away for a bit longer, think hard about it, then come to me, maybe later in the year when you've done a fair bit of uh, soul searching, and only then come back to me, when you've, when you've improved yourself a bit more and you're more ready to come to me. No, you'll never be ready to come to him. All the fitness that he requires is for us to feel our need of him, as the hymn says. Which of you, which of us is fit for Jesus? Fit in ourselves, good enough, ready enough, righteous enough. None of us. What a freeing thing that is to discover, isn't it, brothers and sisters and friends? We're all ultimately on the same level of being sinners, desperate lost sinners, children of Adam, hearts of stone, like David, going our own way, born in sin, shapen in iniquity, sinners from birth, bound that way for the rest of our lives, According to our own nature, we will stay as sinners left to ourselves, all of us. But Jesus Christ comes to people like us today and says, turn to me now. All the ends of the earth, look to me and be saved. There's nothing you can bring but your own sin and guilt. And say, Lord, I hate my sin. I see my sin is foul. I see my sin is evil and wicked. It condemns me. But there's one who stood condemned in my place. There's one who stretched out his arms in love and in death. Who took my wounds in his hands and his feet. Who died for me. Who took my shame and sin and guilt on him. That's Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know him? Have you run to him? Do you seek him? Do you love him? Is there a response to the love of Jesus Christ in your heart? That's what I'm saying to you this morning. Jesus is the leader. Oh, what a leader. 
and a leader who knows us through and through, who knows what our hearts are like, who says, yes, even to your heart, to your heart, guilty though it is, I give repentance. To you, guilty though you are, I give freely forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Respond today to him if you hear his voice. Don't harden your heart, but open your heart to the one who opens his heart and his arms to you today. Let's pray together.